0: Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities through the Public Schools Unite Us initiative, and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State, Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPInfo.org. When the 2024 New York State Legislative Session begins in early January, one of the top issues will be tackling the state's affordable housing crisis. As the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports, Governor Kathy Hochul will try for a second year to convince lawmakers to adopt a comprehensive plan.
1: Tockel began 2023 with an ambitious plan to create 800,000 new housing units to help ease the state's affordable housing crisis. Here's what she said on January 10th. No more waiting for someone else to fix this problem. Housing is a human right. The plan included controversial mandatory housing quotas for localities. If cities, towns, or villages did not meet those requirements, then the state could step in and override local zoning laws. Those ideas were a tough sell to suburban Democrats in the legislature who feared backlash from constituents. Hochul included the plan in her state budget. It was due April 1st, but housing talks stagnated. And when the budget was over three weeks late, the governor dropped the building requirement from the spending plan. Recently, she said she would not revive that construction mandate in 2024. She says she knows the proposal could be volatile in a key election year. I'm not going to head down the same path that we did last year with the exact same plan. And in a year that is an election year for the members, where they have different focus and priorities and I'm going to make sure we get there. The governor's plan also ran into roadblocks from progressives in the legislature. They said they didn't want to approve a housing package unless it included tenants' rights protections, known as the Good Cause Evictions Act. Assembly Housing Committee Chair Linda Rosenthal is one of the lawmakers who wanted to include the tenants' rights measure. Rosenthal held a hearing on housing issues earlier in December, where she says the crisis has only worsened in the past year.
2: It's abundantly clear to all all of us that New York State is be facing a persistent and critical shortage of affordable housing. However, our response to this crisis will require a diverse set of approaches which may be de- different in
3: each region of the state.
1: The Governor's Housing Commissioner was invited to testify at the hearing, but did not attend. And finally, Hochul was not successful in reviving a government-funded tax incentive for developers who include affordable housing in their projects, known as 421A. That expired a couple of years ago. The governor, since the session ended last June, has struck out on her own, using executive powers to create new housing on state-owned property, including rehabbing a former prison and a state psychiatric center. She says she's ready to try again to win legislative approval of her housing plan in the new year. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt.
0: This week, I sat down with Yancey Roy, Albany Bureau Chief, for Newsday to talk about what happened in New York state government and politics this year. We began by talking about some of the last-minute bills the governor signed and didn't sign.
4: Well, to back up for just a second, you know, the legislature passes thousands of bills uh, in a session, and they don't all get sent to the governor immediately. Some of that's because you, there's political discussion about them behind the scenes. Some of them is just practical. I mean, because the way the law works is once you send a bill to the governor, he or she has 10 business days to sign or veto. And if you – practically speaking, if you send 1,000 bills to the governor at once, well, most of them would end up being vetoed because the governor would say, I don't have time to study all these, and I'm not going to sign something in the law that I, I haven't studied every angle on. So any so they just get phased in sent in batches, but there's always a rush at the end of the year, yes, for uh, December 31st and a number of things that get sent forward. And so we have seen a number of those in the fall. And as we move into uh, December here, one of the things that got signed at the end was uh, the even-numbered election year. Uh, but a number of proposals the governor vetoed at the end that were progressive bills. Again, this kind of highlights a little bit of the difference between the governor and the legislature. Uh, some of the vetoes that she uh, in, handed down in December uh, was uh, killing a bill that would uh, make it easier for people to reopen and challenge criminal convictions. Uh, another one that was vetoed would have restricted the buying of lumber, paper, and other products from basically tropical forest. Uh, Another bill would have banned employers from imposing non-compete agreements on uh, departing employees. There was also a bill that was modified uh, at the governor's direction. Uh, It it oversees the uh, limited liability companies, which are partnerships, especially used in real estate. Um, People have complained long that limited liability companies, the way the law works, uh, keeps the true owners hidden from public view. Folks wanted to uh, have more transparency about limited liability companies. She signed the law, but there's not going to be a public database uh, for those LLCs. And so, um, you know, that was kind of nixed there. Another one that was vetoed at the end was a bill that would have mandated judges to take annual training or or regular training, rather, on New York's new bail law, which has been controversial, which had eliminated uh, prosecutors' use of bail for most misdemeanors and and nonviolent felonies. But you know what? There's some other things that she did sign that were also interesting uh, in the fall, going back a little bit earlier. I mean, one of those that That jump out is she signed a clean – what's called the Clean Slate Bill, which has to do with criminal convictions, and New York is not the first to do this. But basically what it does is that if you have committed or been convicted of a a crime, but you've served your sentence and stayed out of trouble for a certain amount of time, your record would be automatically sealed. It's um, three minutes for a misdemeanor, eight for a felony. And uh, she signed that, which was something that uh, progressives and federal or rather uh, Democrats in the legislatures really wanted to uh, put through. It was opposed by a lot of Republicans and prosecutors office. So there were some wins for progressives and also uh, some losses with the signatures or vetoes at the end of the year.
0: Well, I I don't think we can avoid 2023 in New York state. When the former president of the United States and a longtime New Yorker born and raised, Donald Trump, was on trial under investigation by the state attorney general, Letitia James. And of course, in that investigation, it centered on allegations that Trump and other company officials exaggerated his wealth and inflated the value of his assets to secure loans and business deals. Quite a spectacle in New York to witness Trump and his outbursts against the judge of the prosecution.
5: Well,
4: Donald Trump is facing court proceedings in several states, right? Not just New York, Georgia as well. And it's going to set the stage for what could be a very tumultuous 2024 politically, not just politically, but for the nation as these cases play out. And, and, you know, what happens in these cases and Trump's status as the Republican front runner for the presidential nomination or his ability to get on the ballot, which, you know, a court in Colorado recently ruled that he shouldn't be on the ballot there. Boy, that's a, there's a whole lot to play out politically 2024 and the presidential election. And frankly, the presidential election is going to have a trickle down effect on all these congressional races that we kind of mentioned in redistricting. In other case, we talk about redistricting in the maps, but really what happens in the presidential race will probably be the biggest factor in terms of who controls Congress and who wins all of those
0: races. Yeah. And what kind of Republican candidates does the state party push? Right. That's Yancey Roy, Albany bureau chief for Newsday. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Students and Department of Transportation staff are taking advantage of programs at SUNY Cobleskill to expand their technical knowledge. As the Legislative Gazette's Samantha Simmons reports, the partnership between the school and state is meant to close gaps in employment.
6: With a shortage of professionals entering careers in the trades, the Department of Transportation realized it needed to commit resources to attract young people. Now, students are getting technical, on-the-job training while receiving a paycheck. Hayden Marvin is an assistant professor in the Agricultural Engineering Department and CobleSkill alum. Marvin says students aren't coming in with the same skills as 10 or 15 years ago. And with access to technologically advanced workshops, they can catch up.
5: Everyone used to go and rebuild their dirt bike, and it was kind of simple. It was an old two-stroke engine. And now we've got these four-strokes that are pretty complicated. And a 15 year olds not going to tear his bike apart and risk blowing a $3,000 motor where you used to be, yeah, you could get a top-end kit for, you know, 100 bucks and throw it together and be okay with it. Now, yeah, you're going to spend a lot more than that. So they're getting exposed less to just using their hands and doing that stuff and that's one of the downfalls. But through this program, we come in, we have introductory courses that tries to build the hand skills. And then throughout the entire program, they're always using their hands, growing those skills.
6: While equipment is often loaned and donated with existing problems, Marvin says he sometimes creates challenges for students.
5: All this different equipment and this really expensive equipment. And a lot of our industry partners, you know, whether it's John Deere or Milton Caterpillar or Anderson Equipment, they bring us this equipment and let us use it, and you know, then through our partnership with the Department of Transportation, they drop off equipment that they're kind of done with. <laughs> you know, this it has reached its useful life cycle for the Department of Transportation. Now it's our turn to play with it, and it's kind of nice using this, almost as opposed to some of the new equipment, because this has problems. It's already broken. I don't really have to reinvent the wheel and try to break something and make it look like I didn't break something this, we can go through and diagnose a little more real, real world things.
6: Other areas of study include welding and working with air brakes and traction control. Aside from learning the technical skills needed to complete the job, Marvin says students learn to ask the simple questions too. There's something to be said about going
5: in, tearing it apart and figuring it out, but there's also something to be said about, you know, kind of humbling yourself and saying, I'm not quite sure, I don't want to mess this up, um, so we try to
6: try to get them both sides of it. Junior Corey Sherivard says the course and program taught him the fundamentals of the work.
7: Well, basically it depends on where you're interning. With DOT, for example, um, it was similar to a lab practice, you know, but the professor wasn't kind of hovering around making sure everything was going according to plan. It was up to me to make sure everything went according to plan. Of course, there were supervisors making sure I wasn't going to damage anything, but, you know, generally speaking, it's up to the intern to make sure that they're you know, acting accordingly. It's basically like a job.
6: Marvin says DOT employees also take advantage of trainings at the college.
5: Seeing the technicians that come in and hearing all their thoughts about the training, about what they deal with on a day-to-day basis, it's, it's a lot of fun to see both sides of it.
6: Marvin says Shane Gilcrest, the director for the DOT's Office of Fleet Administration and Support, is to thank for the success of the program. For his part, Gilcrest adds the department is constantly improving with the help of partnerships.
8: The education here uh, prepares them to get ready to go in the industry, and then the learning multiplies from there because we have training from manufacturers. The industry technology changes constantly, so we have to learn and adapt to that every single year, which is why we are sending our folks here, but we also send our folks to other training as well so they can stay current. One of the challenges in the industry is we've spent a lot of money on engineering uh, highly technical, environmentally friendly piece of equipment, but we haven't made a large investment in the workforce to maintain that.
6: Gilchrist says more than a decade ago, the department saw a shortage of drivers and technical workers coming and knew it needed to be actively addressed. Gilchrist says over the years, the department has been able to conduct outreach and implement programs at local BOCES and CTE programs for high schoolers, with an eye toward feeding efforts like this one. However, Gilchrist says there are more ways than one to work together.
8: DOT uh, has many different career opportunities. Um, Engineering, for example, uh, designing roads and bridges and working with contractors to get capital projects done. Um, There's administrative titles that are out there. CDL drivers. There's a national shortage of CDL drivers on our maintenance side that drive plow trucks. Um, so it's, it's on the trade side, uh, there's, we're suffering like everybody else is, but we have other career opportunities.
6: Sherivard completed his internship program at the Waterford Fleet Facility. He says his course load is similar to those in STEM.
7: The lecture and the lab really go hand in hand with each other. You know, I mean, the way I set up is the lecture kind of, you know, talk about what you're going to do in lab, essentially. It's like a briefing, you know, which I find really helpful because when I get in the lab, I have my lab sheet. I'm like, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to be doing today.
6: Sherivard says he's learned about the proper way to use tools, read manuals, and document work. He explains what a lab section looks like.
7: With the diagnostic uh, labs, it'll be sort of like a little dialogue about the machine, like, oh, a customer brought this in and it's not working. How, How do you fix it? You know, these are the symptoms. Is there a way you can, you know rectify this issue or sometimes we'll be just learning about a system so they'll say identify these parts, you know, trace this schematic, you know, identify this component on a schematic sheet because schematics are crazy interesting.
6: DOT says while other colleges are experiencing low enrollment in financial difficulties, SUNY Cobleskill and DOT are expanding their offerings in OSHA safety training and electric vehicle training. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Samantha Simmons.
0: You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The holidays are an especially busy time for food pantries in the U.S. Ahead of the new year, however, nonprofits across New York are asking Governor Kathy Hochul to start planning for the summer when many food-insecure families lose access to school meals and other programs. Rachel Sabella, director of No Kid Hungry New York, says the state has the opportunity to sign up for a new summer electronic benefits transfer program offered by the federal government, but it needs to opt in by January 1st. Sabella spoke with the Legislative Gazette's Jesse King about the program and the latest statistics on food insecurity across the country.
2: Eligible families, eligible children would receive $40 per month in the summer months on an EBT card that they could take to a farmer's market, they could take to a local grocery store to purchase those meals. This benefit is paid for 100% by the federal government, all New York State has to do is to pay 50% of the administrative costs. The federal government will cover the other 50%. Um, what's so time sensitive is New York needs to opt into this program by January 1st in order to implement it for summer of 2024.
3: So, when you say there are administrative costs, how much are those exactly? What would the state of New York be contributing?
2: So for the administrative costs, we're looking at approximately $20 million. So for New York State to invest $20 million, they would in return receive approximately $220 million in federal funds that would go to addressing child food insecurity. It's a game changer, and it's something New York needs to do now to help families.
3: Have you spoken with a governor on this or heard anything from the administration that suggests that this will be in the budget next year?
2: We are continuing conversations with the Hokul administration, but as a longtime advocate, I want to see those numbers in writing. And once we see it, whether it's part of State of the State, whether it's part of the budget release, we will feel better. But I have a duty as a New Yorker um, and as an advocate for these programs to continue to raise our voice. And you know, we hope um, that we will see New York participate in this program.
3: Well, I'd like to talk a little bit about food insecurity nationwide. Um, what is the state of hunger and especially child hunger in the US right now? I guess, you know, how have things changed since the pandemic?
2: Child hunger is on the rise across the country. Um, In the last year, child hunger rose 44%. It went from one in eight children to one in five children. So we are seeing this drastic rise. We know families are struggling to put food on the table. But we also know there's many things we can do to address this and to reverse this trend and help people. But we're seeing the numbers skyrocket, and it has me very concerned.
3: What resources and tools do we currently have available to combat food insecurity?
2: Number one is we have safety net programs. Programs like the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, um, that's a grocery benefit for eligible families. So how can we make sure people are enrolled and we're protecting programs like that? School meals in New York right now, it is even easier for districts, thanks to some government funds, to provide meals at no cost to kids. For some families, this is a huge relief. Children can have access to a no-cost breakfast and no-cost lunch. Programs like WIC, there are so many options out there, but we need to protect them. And we also need to bring back some programs that sunsetted in the pandemic.
3: All right, so when you say those programs fell through, what were they exactly? What did those do?
2: The first action was the expansion of the child tax credit. That helped families put food on the table, pay their bills, but that expansion ended. So we want to see that come back and to be permanent. We saw the pandemic EBT program, which provided families with a grocery benefit when they couldn't get. their school building to pick up meals. That helped them put food on the table and that also helped um, local businesses because that money was being reinvested in local communities. We also saw a lot of flexibilities in programs. It was easier for families to pick up meals, um, take a few days worth of meals at home in the summer months. So we learned a lot and we want to see so many of those provisions and programs come back
3: I think the common perception anyway is that the holidays are a really big time for giving. You hear a lot about people organizing food drives, volunteering at soup kitchens, food pantries, and so on uh, during the month of December. And that's also because, you know, it can be a pretty tough time for people. Would you say from your experience that that's true? Is this a particularly big month to work on this? And this is where we see a lot of the effort going into to food pantries and, and things like that.
2: You know, I think it's an interesting question. To start on the data front, we know that families are struggling. Um, We did a poll in 2023 at No Kid Hungry and found that two in five New York families are experiencing signs of food insecurity. Three in four New Yorkers that responded also reported that it was harder to afford groceries this year than last. We all see the costs rising. And for those facing food insecurity, this is real. They're skipping meals. They're buying less food or buying less healthy food. They're looking for additional support. So we know New Yorkers are generous. We know that they are making donations of food and of funds to emergency food providers. We know they're volunteering. But it's going to take more than that. And that's why it's so important for people to raise their voice and for us to see significant policy changes, because that also ensures that people are treated with dignity, that they can have choice on the foods that they're providing with their families and that they are able to make those decisions and to also support businesses in their community while they're doing that.
3: For those who might be struggling right now, what advice do you have for them?
2: The first thing I want to say is that these programs exist to help families put food on the table. Nobody should be embarrassed by relying on a program. So what we want people to know is, number one, you can reach out to a local community organization, your county social services department, Find out if you're eligible for SNAP. I think there's a lot of misunderstandings out there from people. That is a resource. Talk to your school district. Are they providing no-cost breakfast and lunch? Are they eligible to do so and chose not to? If that's the case, let's work together to make sure that they're providing those meals. There's also community organizations, emergency food providers, faith-based organizations and communities that are there to offer support. They're not there to judge. They're there to provide meals, to provide direction how to get support. So I encourage people to talk to those in their community to help get that support.
3: Just one quick follow-up, you mentioned that people often misunderstand SNAP benefits. Is there anything else on this subject that you feel people commonly misunderstand or get wrong, that they they file wrong? Um, Any myths about hunger and, and these resources that you'd like to dispel?
2: I think oftentimes there's some confusion about what programs exist and who is eligible for those. I've heard some people say, well, I have a job, so I'm not eligible for SNAP. No, it's based on income levels and other costs that families face in their budget. So it's worth talking to a community organization, talking talking to a SNAP enroller, see what benefits are out there. I think as we approach the new year, a tremendous resource for New Yorkers or eligible New Yorkers is VITA tax programs, which allow eligible New Yorkers to have their taxes done at no cost by IRS certified tax preparers. They'll work with them to make sure that they're applying for tax credits, that they're getting the deductions they need. But a lot of people don't know about that. So that's something that you can visit the New York State Department of Taxation website for. Look at local community organizations and see what's out there. I also think something that is also doesn't get the attention it needs is we consider summer the hungriest time of year. When school buildings are closed, where are people going to get those meals? So number one, if New York State opts into summer EBT, that will help eligible families with that grocery benefit to purchase those meals, but also their summer meals programs. They're at parks, they're at pools, they're at schools. We have a texting line where people can send a message and find out the closest location for them. So I think so much of this is about awareness and making New Yorkers know that these programs are out there and they're there to support them.
0: That's Rachel Sabella, director of No Kid Hungry New York, speaking with the Legislative Gazette's Jesse King. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at WAMCPodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Look for program number 2352. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. Happy New Year. Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from United University Professions. Representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State, Frederick E. Cole, President. Uupinfo.org.